Middle East history is not something you read about in books. Did you know the Middle East is home to some of the world's most hospitable people? Hello and welcome to TripCast 360, the podcast of lively banter about travel, tourism, and entertainment. I am Michael Gordon Bennett coming to you from Las Vegas, Nevada, and I am joined as always by the man from Barbados via the Big Apple, Dave Cumberbatch. Dave, 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 we have a really great guest today. We get to talk about destinations that we have never covered on the show, Malaysia, Australia, Singapore. I think we're going to have a little bit of fun. Yeah. Have you ever been to Australia? I have not. Um, it's one of the few, we were, when I worked at the travel channel, we were supposed to go to the, uh, to Australia. We actually set up a, uh, we were going to film there for two weeks doing our live shows from Australia. And then in the infinite wisdom of the travel channel, which in those days was owned by discovery. They decided to pull the plug. Uh, oh, oh we don't have any money. Yes, you did. I made it for you. So <laughs> stop talking about, you don't have any money, <laughs> but you know, such as I have, I've always wanted to go to Australia Our guest today has done a significant amount of traveling, not just um, on holiday, but also uh, to work. And some of the places that he's, that he's been to or that he's lived, I dream of going to those places, Dubai, Singapore, Malaysia, and the list continues. Well, it's not too late. You're not, you're not too dead yet. just thought i'd I'd help um you know my best friend lives in australia he left uh, la and moved to australia about 10 years ago but he had to wait his wife was an australian citizen but he was from scotland so he had to hang out an extra year to get the clearances he needed to uh, be able to live there so he lives there now and every once in a while he calls me on facetime and then he goes mm. outside because he lives right outside of Sydney in the hills. So he takes his computer and walks around and says, don't you want to be here? <laughs> it's like, dude, I'm going to slap the hell out of you. <laughs> Australia's COVID rate is extremely low. It's almost like zero. Isn't that amazing? Uh, yeah, well, they didn't have the political um, malfeasance that we had here. And, uh, you know, I... I don't get me started on politics. I, I, I can talk all day and poor Damien would be waiting on the phone for the next month. <laughs> I'm just, it, it, it's annoying to me that everything that we do in the world is based on some sort of scientific discovery. And for this country in particular to walk around and deny science for what's been going on a couple of decades and now is a source of irritation to me that I just, I don't want to get into it. I, I, can, I can go forever. All right, perfect time to introduce our guest. Well, let's get him in here. Let me let me do some housekeeping notes first. Our podcast, TripCast360.com, is on every single platform out there imaginable. But if you forget where it is, just go to our website, TripCast360.com. We post new episodes every single Monday. So you can like, share, follow, subscribe, do all those great things that most folks do with a podcast. Uh, if you're busy, just put it on in the background and listen to us. If you're in the car driving, just listen to it in the car. We have a lot of our um, uh, people that we've heard from listen to it on their drives to and from work. So uh, please uh, please uh, start to follow us, and you'll find some really interesting topics on our platform. And uh, before Dave talks about other ways to reach us, we are going, as of June 1st, going to launch our uh, Guess Where We Are photo contest of the month. And it basically is an Instagram contest only where you can guess where that photo is. 
and uh, you'll win a little gift certificate, or I think they call them gift cards now, $50 gift cards. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, one of the requirements is you have to follow us on um, Instagram. So if you're not doing that, please do so. This particular podcast will be the last podcast before we launch that on June 1st. So you heard it here first, folks. Um, Dave, little social media stuff. Yeah, check us out on Facebook. Michael just mentioned Instagram, but we're on Twitter, we're on LinkedIn. And as usual, do the normal thing. Do what everyone else does. Follow us, like us, message us, and tag us. All right. Now, let's get, let's get, you've heard me mention his name twice already, so let me get him in here. Without further ado, our guest today is Damien Tenbaumer. He's a leadership coach and noted public speaker and has worked in over 40 countries and lived in seven that we know of. Damien's travels have taken him to Singapore, Malaysia, India, Bahrain, and the UAE, just to name a few. Today, he joins us all the way from Australia to discuss his global travel adventures, and uh, he might even give us uh, a little leadership tips along the way. So, Damien, welcome to TripCast 360. Uh, G'day. Good morning. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Dave, for the uh, introduction. (laughs) Had to but, throw the g'day in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we we we've got we we want authentic Australian here, even if Dave and I can't figure it out. Uh, you've got it, you got it. But but I have to clear up one thing before we go ahead. When we have a barbecue, we call them prawns. We don't call them shrimps. Okay. That's oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah, prawns. Let me put that down in my notes. <laughs> yeah, but, but prawn, prawns actually sounds more exotic. I like it. It does. It does. <laughs> Damon, you've had and you've had a very interesting life. So let's get started from the beginning. You talked about that interesting period in your life that started more than 33 years ago. Uh, your childhood friend Gavin helped you to find your real <laughs> you're laughing, your real career and passion. I guess you can tell that I've been doing some um research on you. Um, talk about that relationship and what it uh, means to you at this point in your life. Yeah, look, thanks, David. Um, I'm, I'm laughing because, um, yeah, I wrote that piece a while ago and, and Gavin was a great school friend of mine and being clueless teens, we sort of left high school and didn't know what to do. So we thought we'd go into the city, all of a 15-minute train trip away and, and walk around and see what was on offer. And as it happens, we're walking down, uh, walking down the road and saw a crowd of people and, you know, what's happening here? And are we lined up? And we're going, oh, you're hiring now. What's this? Oh, it's a hotel. And literally, it was a pre-opening hotel and they were just pulling warm bodies from the street and asking them questions and giving them a uniform. And um, Gavin and I started pretty much straight away. Um, happy to say I started as a steward uh, out of high school, completely clueless and you know, just cleaning glasses and plates and everything else. Um, um, and as it goes, I found a passion in in doing that. And my first shift was 16 hours long, um, but Gavin couldn't hack it. He just, I think he bailed after about two weeks. He just went completely MIA. Um, I think he's working for the government now, so that can show you sort of the work ethic behind it. <laughs> but, um, and I think it was quite interesting because I, I, had no idea about what I wanted to do after high school. I actually wanted to join uh, the armed forces, but I'm colorblind, and that's sort of one of the key key ones that uh, keep you out of the armed forces, unfortunately. Um, so I discovered hotels, and 
it was, I don't know, you know, it sounds corny, but it was really a passion that I found straight away. Um, the camaraderie, the support, um, the variety of work that you do, even in, as a steward. Um, but it probably could have also been the ladies in the the very slinky outfits that were looking after the nightclub at the time. It was, <laughs> that does help. It does, absolutely. What do they do? Do they do room service or, or what is it, you know? Um, and it turned out they worked in the nightclub. But um, I, I don't look back. I mean, it was hard work, as, as anything worth doing is, is, is hard. Um, but uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And that was, yeah, 33 over years ago. And, yeah, I, I think my mum still thinks I work behind the front desk of a hotel. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of things in between then and now for sure. But, yeah, no, thank you, David, for bringing that up. But uh, <laughs> smile the dial. Most of your time has been spent in the Middle East. Um, significant amount of years, not just traveling, but, but living as well. What was it like for a guy from Australia, a young guy, uh, Going to the Middle East, living in the Middle East, was it a tough adjust, adjustment for you? Actually, this is going to sound really corny, but no, it was a seamless transition. And, and, and I'll give you a bit of context to that. Um, I was lucky for about two years to live in India, and which is, as a foreigner, is a very, very hard place to live. Anyone who's lived there or traveled there, you'll know. But having that Indian experience gave me a bit of understanding of the multiculturalism and the humility and how lucky we are. So I went into um, the Middle East and my boss at the time had a choice of basing us in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia or Bahrain. And before I even got the words out of my mouth, my wife said Bahrain um, because it's a bit more open and, and, and the likes. So we, uh, we lived in Bahrain for about two years and I would commute across the causeway from Bahrain to East Coast Saudi Arabia for uh, for some time there, um, and actually a little of the some people who have lived there would know um, the the nickname for the it's actually the King Fahad Causeway, it's the longest causeway in the world at the time. It's nicknamed the Johnny Walker Causeway. Um, <laughs> was, well, you know, boys and they drive on the fr- Thursday night as it was to Bahrain, have a few drinks, and drive back on the Saturday or Sunday morning, throw the empties out the window, Johnny Walker Causeway. Um, exactly. So <laughs> it, it was a great time. And the Bahrainis and anybody from the GCC, they're wonderful people. Um, now, if you go in there with a Western mentality, you won't last because we like structure and discipline. You know, nine o'clock in the morning is nine o'clock in the morning. Over there at Yanni, 11 o'clock maybe. So you've got to go there with a very relaxed temperament. And I think coming from the Gold Coast in Queensland, a little bit like California, you know, we're a bit chilled, a bit relaxed. Um, it felt right. Um, and I have some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful close friends from, you know, from 11 plus years ago that I'm in contact with as of even this morning. Um, because in the Middle East, we've just entered, they've just entered Eid. Uh, Ramadan is finished and they're into Eid al-Fitr. So the fasting is finished and now it's a time for reflection and celebration of family and friends. Um, and I feel I left a part of myself in Saudi Arabia because I'm looking for a great Arabic meal somewhere on the Gold Coast and it just doesn't exist. Um, (laughs) The great thing about the Middle East is that it's all about relationships. You know, in the West, you know, you'll play golf with someone, you go out for dinner with someone, you know, you might go out in a boat or or something, get get to learn to know somebody. It takes time to develop those relationships. And from a business sense, you know, you're part of the concentric circle. You know, the centre is the key family unit. 
Then there's mums, dads, and cousins and aunties and uncles, and we're in the very outer. So there's times that you'd go there for a meeting and your, your, your meeting um, person doesn't arrive because his brother needs to buy a new car, but he needs his help to choose the colour. So once you understand that, um, it's, a, it's a great transition and it's a, it's a wonderfully giving place. It really is. I, seriously, I could talk about the Middle East for hours and hours and hours. I absolutely could. I was so lucky to, to go to many, many places there, as you've seen. Um, as regards to the taking your time and not being on time, that's perfect for Dave. He's from Barbados. He's used to <laughs> island time. They don't do a damn thing fast down in the Caribbean, so he would be a perfect fit. Um, but as regards to uh, the Middle East, there's a lot of misconception about the Middle East, you know, based on fear mongering and whatever. What are, I, I guess what I'm asking is, can you address some of the, those misconceptions and kind of turn it back positive? Uh, because I have not heard from people who've been there a bad thing about the Middle East, but I always get these, uh, you know, especially here in America, everything is, oh, God, you're afraid. Why? Mm. Look, it's a great question, Michael. Um, it's really, it's, it's a want to understand and, and people's lack of true information. And unfortunately, most of the things that one sees on cable news or, or, or the likes is a biased media approach to what sells stories and actually what's not true on the ground. Um, and the irony of being in the Middle East, I felt safer there at 2 o'clock in the morning walking down a street in Riyadh than I would at 10 o'clock in the morning in the Queen Street Mall in Brisbane because there is a, a if you're a foreign worker, um, your visa is everything. And there's a zero tolerance, which is great. Um, and if you're a local, you have a hospitality that's imbued in, you know, two, 3,000 years of heritage to a guest. So the zero tolerance and a true humility of, of one of service and hospitality. Um, yeah. I had, I'll give you one story, actually. There was a lady um, working in revenue management. It was probably about 10 years ago. And, and I was due to take her into Saudi Arabia. Um, Lady living in the UK, German German origin, she was in tears the night before. I actually took her out to buy an Abaya. Now, 10 years ago, Saudi was a lot different to what it is, say, now. It's a bit more relaxed, but still rules and regulations. The Abaya is the long black dress that every woman of whatever faith needs to wear. She was in tears. She was shaking on the plane. Um, we sat next to each other on the plane, but then we separated when we got there. After the first day, she was planning her second and third trips because that whole sense of different, different uh, culture and, and a fear had dropped away. She got a better experience there than I did. They, they respect women. They do. Um, okay, there's elements of subjugation that people see, but it's a cultural thing. And if anybody wants to go there thinking they'll change it, it's not going to happen. No, no. And I think if you go there with the attitude to learn, uh, and to experience, you come out richer. Um, yeah, and it, it, it saddens me. I had even people in, in IHG say, oh, Saudi Arabia. And my, my question then was, so when were you last there? Oh, no. Well, okay, let me tell you about it. Um, I reckon the first year of my job was really re-educating the company as to what a wonderful place it is, what a huge opportunity for revenue it is, and a huge opportunity for talent it is as well. Um, yeah, I, it really upsets me when people say, oh, it, it's a scary place. Um, you're more you're more liable to get knifed by somebody at the local shopping centre here, unfortunately, than you would in anywhere in the Middle East. 
yeah, absolutely amazing. I've always taken great umbrage with people who have never been to the Middle East, or for that matter, have never been outside of a 10-mile radius of their front door and uh, have this really critical outlook on what it's like to live someplace else. They don't know. And I have not met one single person from the Middle East who has mistreated me, who has been a threat to me, who has talked down to me, which happens. I'm, yeah, I'm an American. I'm used to that. And just like you said, I'm used to walking down the street and looking over my shoulder and I'm six foot four and 260 pounds. And most people don't have enough guts to do stuff to me, but they do here. <laughs> you know, uh, so uh, yeah, I, I've always wondered. So you've lived in what? Saudi Arabia. I'm, I'm going through the list here of Middle East. You, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, um, Dubai. Was it UAE? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the yeah the UAE. So um, when we left Australia, we're living in Perth and went to Singapore. Uh, then from there, moved into operations in Malaysia. I opened up the Holiday Inn in Malacca, which is really cool. Oh wow! Um, then from there, went across to India. Uh, it was regional sales and marketing for Southwest Asia. Uh, we had a hotel in Pakistan at the time, and then I spent a lot of time in India, uh, Goa, Mumbai, uh, or Bombay, uh, Delhi, Hyderabad, uh, and the rounds. And then from India, um, Bahrain, and I was looking after purely Saudi Arabia from a commercial perspective. And that was, that was really interesting because it was the first corporate role that was purely responsible uh, for Saudi Arabia that wasn't on property. So it was like, oh, here's this strange role, this corporate person, he's going to tell us what to do. And he's from where? Austria? Yeah, no, Australia. <laughs> um, so it was a real sense of education, and, and that's where it, the first six months of my time in Saudi was just really breakfast, tea, lunch, iftar, soho, coffee, you know, just to get to know people um, because they had to know Damien before they knew the role that I was playing to support them. And then my philosophy was always one of enabling. And then from living in Bahrain, they centralised some of the remote locations into Dubai in the UAE. Uh, yeah, Dubai is one of the seven emirates in the United Arab Emirates. And um, mm-hmm. It's it's a pretty cool place. It's 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 the noisy it's the noisy of all the seven emirates. Um, you know that that's what people see as the Middle East, and they've done a great marketing job over the years. Emirates Airlines and Burj Khalifa and and Burj Al Arab and everything else. So yeah, love that time there. Yeah, yeah I've got I've got a ton of friends who've been to Dubai, and they all come back waxing poetic about it. They love that place, and um, I, I, I guess I'm curious. Um, Dubai had enough sense in some respects to modernize their country, if you will, but still hold on to their Arab traditions and still be open to the West, even where Westerners feel comfortable going there all the time. And they didn't rely on oil like some of the other places did. I, that, that, to me, is actually a statement in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, exactly right. Uh, Sheikh Mo or Sheikh Mohammed uh, Maktoum. Uh, you know, the ruler and, and, and prime minister there of Dubai, um, a real visionary. And, and I'm, I'm saying that even being out of the country because they saw things that nobody else saw. Um, they had great money from the burn years. They, they deployed that into um, building amazing, amazing uh, facilities. The Dubai Mall was our local shopping centre. Now, it's the yeah, largest wow. mall in the world that has an aquarium inside it. It's just insane and nothing compares to that. Um, and the welcoming Arab hospitality that you touched on, Michael, exactly right. They they maintain that heritage there. Um, as long as visitors go there and respectful, they have a wonderful, wonderful time. 
Um, yeah, look, it's such an easy place to get around. You've got all the brands you could want, but then you could go to um, Karama Markets and get a local Indian biryani, you know, for like, you know, three dirham, which is 60 cents type thing. Or you could go to the top of the Burj Khalifa and have, you know, an amazing six-star meal and, and spend 6,000 dirham. You've got everything in between. Um, and they're very tolerant of, of all nationalities. And, and I'm very happy to see the normalisation with Israel, politics aside, of recent as well. Um, there was church there, a small synagogue, a Buddhist temple, um, obviously mosques everywhere but very respectful of everybody as long as it goes both ways. Um, wonderful, wonderful time. Um, safe, efficient, welcoming. Uh, yeah, can't speak more highly of, of Dubai. Oh, you, you'll get a kick out of this story. My friend, Tony, that I was telling you about who lives in Sydney now, well, Tony was in the British military, and guess who his bunkmate was? Oh. The Sheikh. Oh, excellent. <laughs> yeah. excellent. <laughs> this is long oh. before we all knew who... Sheikh Mohammed was, but they were bunkmates. And Tony's told me that story about 200 times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent. Excellent. Actually, and you're exactly right. You know, in his, in his formative years, he was uh, one of the blokes. He was out there. And, and his son, uh, Faza, is as a normal bloke you'd ever want to meet. Uh, okay, he's surrounded by 25 bodyguards. But, you know, he is out there doing Spartan races. He's out there by by example, doing things that, that he enjoys that will help others as well. The same with Sheikh Mohammed. You know, um, he saved a fantastic brand of car, the Mercedes G-Wagon. You know, they were going to discontinue that car. They invested in the company and, and you see a G-Wagon everywhere in Dubai and, and, and around overseas. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and the military is hugely important to the family, not from, a, you know, an armament perspective, but from a discipline and respect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You talked about sheared respect. You know, they, they respect you if, you if you respect them. Do you feel as though you are an ambassador for Australia, for your country? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think me as, as Damien or, or Damo, as, as my mates would call me, um, yeah, I do try to be an ambassador for Australia, but I also try to be an ambassador for the places where I've lived and worked because I love helping people understand, um, not only through coaching, just any great conversation. And if I can bring an element of understanding to somebody overseas about Australia or somebody here about overseas, my job's done, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I think the biggest failure that people have when they travel to new destinations, they have a closed mind. Um, you know, okay, you could go to Riyadh and get a great hamburger, but you could also have a fantastic local experience. So I think if people go to a, a new location wanting to experience the, the locale, like, like Michael, you mentioned Spain, you know, when we went to Spain for holidays a couple of years ago, it was churro and chocolate for breakfast and espresso coffee, you know. Yep. I'm not looking for a bacon and egg toasty. No, you want to go local. Um, and I think if someone has the attitude from a business or leisure perspective of one to go in with open eyes, um, then that drops away because think of it the other way around. You wouldn't want somebody trying to impose their rules and regulations upon our way of life, you know. You know, dressed up on the Gold Coast is wearing shoes. It's a bit like Florida, you know, um, whereas dressed up in Dubai is a little bit different and dressed up in the Middle East is different. So, yeah, I think it's just one of wanting to learn and know and experience without sort of bringing in your own um, 
what would it be? Your own prejudices and, and, and closed mindset. You don't learn that way. No, you, just don't you don't learn. No. Yeah, and the world, cool. be, the world becomes closed off to you if you do that. Absolutely, it does. It does, yeah. And, and, and David, to your earlier question about being an ambassador for Australia, I used to have a bit of fun with that as well because apparently we've got a few animals here that are a little bit dangerous. <laughs> Yeah, keep yeah. going because there's more. Yeah, there, there is. <laughs> I, mean, I have to tell you one funny story actually, and and if I'm going to send it to my friend who we stitched up just because it was fun. Um, a South African uh, guy who was working in Dubai had to come to Australia for a conference, and his PA, beautiful, beautiful young lady from India. Um, was so humble. I said, Damien, Damien, you're Australian. Does does Mr. Bjorn need a visa? Uh, yeah, he does. And okay, where do I go? Here you go. Great. And said, so, but also he needs to have his vaccinations. And uh, they're going, what for? I said, um, the koala virus. What? <laughs> well, you've heard about Mars and MERS and everything else. You, the drop bears. And I showed her a photograph of the drop bears. I said, these things are vicious. And if he gets nicked, sorry, Bjorn's going to be in hospital for a long time. Oh, oh, okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. The poor thing, and Bjorn and my mates and the other guys in the office are in on it, she went to, to hospitals, to clinics, to uh, Australian Consul General, to even the High Commission to say, where do we get this vaccination from? No, it doesn't exist, I'm sorry. It was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I, felt, I felt awful. I felt awful. Dry, but look, it's cost me a lot of uh, a lot of fluffy teddy bears over the years and platypus. I'm happy to happy to put up with that. Uh, I'm going to hold on to that one, but I may have to use it on a couple of people. Dave, we can put the Barbados virus on them. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Got to look out for the drop bears. Wow. <laughs> I, I, something has always puzzled me, and this is going to require you to put your business hat back on for just a moment. I was, I told you about my friend, Tony, who now lives in Sydney, and I used to help people raise money for film and TV projects. And Dubai was always one of the places where we would go seek funding because they were more than willing to invest, but they treat money differently than Americans do. And it took me a while to figure that out. Uh, you know, we, we talk about things like interest rates and, you know, that's not something that's uh, 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 part of their culture. Could you give me a primer a little bit about how they treat money, especially in Dubai? Yeah, um, it's an interesting one. From a from an expatriate worker's perspective, um, it, we were fortunate to be tax-free. So you earned in, in, in Durham, which was peak to the U.S. dollar. So, you know, in terms earning in U.S. dollars. Um, the term of money is an enabler for the Emiratis, as it would be, and the money has come from relationships and really striking a balance of the Dubai and Arabic hospitality and culture and the new way of commerce. So um, Al Futaim was a wonderful owner of a few of our hotels, and they had a couple of key distributorships. Toyota is one of them across the GCC. So money was seen as an enabler for their entire family to grow and create a legacy. Um, but then on the flip side, you'd have a, a, you know, a blue-collar worker maybe coming in from Bangladesh or something who by Western terms would be earning not a lot of money. But then again, if you look at what their earning potential is back there, um, is six or 10 times what they could earn. So it's a matter of just understanding where the money is coming from and how the people value it. So from an Emirati perspective, it's one of pride and enablement. 
and giving their family willingness to travel. For me and my family, it was it was tax free, which sort of raised a few eyebrows and you know, a few people don't speak to me now. So what do you mean you're paying tax? <laughs> yeah, I am now, but not not not, not before. Um, but then from a you know a, a, a worker, it's a, it's again it's like somebody from Philippines, uh, like our PA in the Philippines, PA who was Filipino, that would be supporting three or four families back home. Now, wow. by comparison to Western standards, it's not a lot of money, but then looking at what they could earn back there, it's a lot. So I guess to answer your question, it's really to see what lens you want to put across it uh, as, to, as to how they see it. But from a tourist perspective, oh, my God, wow. They could just see things as bling, 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 cheap, 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 and they just buy, buy, buy. And from an inbound perspective, it's very inexpensive. Um, the most expensive thing there is probably alcohol. I, mean, I don't drink alcohol. But there was about a 600% tax on alcohol, you know, massive, massive, massive. That was really to dissuade a lot of the, uh, the, 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 the enjoyment there as it would be outside of hotels. But, uh, yeah, look, money is an enabler ultimately at the end of the day. Um, but from a charity perspective, like you're saying, Michael, from a funding perspective, um, charity, they'll certainly get behind. But if it's funding, they love the underdog. And I think that's if you see a startup, mm. an entrepreneur, they love the underdog and, and they really will support the underdog as, as much as they possibly can because then it becomes, you know, Emirati made, Dubai made, and then mm. they can hang their hat on it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I never yeah. thought of it in, from that perspective, but that is, that, that's awesome. It would, it would actually make the world a lot better place if somebody else who didn't have the means to capital but had a great business idea which is one of the things that's actually killing the United States. We have people in this country who have great business ideas and they can't get their hands on even a hundred dollars. And it's sad. Wow. wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's really sad. I mean, so yeah, I can totally appreciate that. Um, from a, um, we, we've kind of done the big 360 view of, of the Middle East. Uh, drill down from a tourist perspective. Where would, if you're new to the Middle East, let's say it's the first time you've ever been, where would you recommend somebody go? Oh, my goodness. Now, I'm going to upset a lot of friends in this way. <laughs> <laughs> no, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Um, you know what? I would do it in the order. I would go Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon, and then into the UAE. And wow. I say that in a way that Jordan is its amazing. It's just such a, a beautiful country. You've got the freshest stone fruits and vegetables you could ever, ever want to eat there. Then you've got Petra, then you've got Little Petra, you've got the Dead Sea, you've got uh, the, all the historic sites and the holy sites from Christianity, and then literally across the Dead Sea, you've got Israel. So you, 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 at the Dead Sea, and you can see the twinkling lights of Israel on the other side there. Um, that's as close to the Middle East as you get. Then Egypt is just, oh, my God, it's just, it's a massive. Cairo is a megapolis. You've got 80 million people in Cairo. Um, you know, then you've got Alexander. Uh, then you've got the Red Sea. Then you've got Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, yeah, it's so many different places within Egypt outside of just the traditional pyramid and Nile. I was lucky enough to go to the Great Pyramids of Giza. We had an amazing general manager event with IHG and Catherine Jenkins, who's a Welsh uh, soprano singer was performing on the backlit Grand Pyramids. It was just mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. So you could do these amazing things there without blowing the bank. Um, then from Egypt, you could probably spend a good two weeks in Egypt. Um, then Lebanon, seriously. Lebanon is 
the party capital of the world um, because there might not be a tomorrow and they party like there's no tomorrow every single bloody day. Um, I've spent so many times, so many days in Lebanon. It was absolutely amazing. You can go, there's a street in Lebanon uh, in an area called Jamezi and the bars hold no more than 12 people. Well, maybe 14 people. They're just like little front rooms of houses that have been converted into bars. Um, there's probably about 60 of them, but every single one is so eclectic and so different. Um, you wouldn't realise you're in Beirut. And literally that Jamezi area is probably three blocks from where the port explosion was last year. Um, and, and they're such a resilient people. The food, the, the party, the atmosphere, um, yeah, absolutely brilliant. And then I think to get over all of that, you'd want to come to Dubai and go to one of the resorts on the beach and just chill and relax for a good week or so. Yeah. See, see my, my, girl, my girlfriend would start in reverse and go to Dubai first because all she thinks about is the luxury piece of it. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, you've got to see the real, real, the real, uh, the real Arab side of, of the world first. Yeah. Um, but then again, actually, what's really pleasing is Saudi Arabia is opening up. And when I was, um, just before I left, I just started the tourist visa. And they actually have now a tourist visa process. So before this, you'd have to have sponsorship and business visa and government approval, and it was quite a quite a hassle. Uh, now they have a tourism visa. Uh, and again, the diving in the Red Sea is the best in the world. It's better than our Great Barrier Reef. This is untouched. Really? Oh, it is. Oh, my God. It is amazing. Um, the water is so clear. You've got an abundance of fish life. The, the colours are just superb. Um, okay, you can't have the beer on the beach, but who really needs a beer on the beach when you've got all that in front of you? Um, and the Jeddah port, um, the the fishing off there, it's just oh, amazing, totally untouched, mm -hmm. absolutely untouched. Yeah. So they have fully recovered from the from the war. Um, pretty much, yeah. There's a few. Uh, Yemen is still playing a bit of havoc into Saudi Arabia. Um, mm -hmm. That's a proxy war between probably the you know USSR and America and and the UAE and and mm -hmm. the and Saudi Arabia, um, but again it's a very safe place. I mean yes they have had some strife over the years. There was some um, missiles sent from uh, Yemen across into Saudi Arabia. Uh, most of them were actually intercepted early in the peace, so they didn't actually hit land. Uh, unfortunately, one bloke about two years ago, one was blown up in the sky and the bits fell on top of his house. That was that was terrible, but no, they're, they're okay. They're okay. But the the Red Sea is oh, amazing. Absolutely, I, I can't speak more highly of it. Yeah. Are there any significant differences between, let's say, Jordan as opposed to Dubai or Egypt? Is are there any significant differences in terms of culture, in terms of food? Yeah, um, food. Would probably start a war in the Middle East when you start. Really? Where's the best Papua Ganoush? Where's the best falafel? Um, because every every country has its own version of the same food. So hummus, which is a chickpea dip, you know, um, it started in Syria. No, it started in Lebanon. No, 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 no. This is Jordanian. No, no, this is Saudi. So they all have this great, you know, uh, you know, infighting about food. It's a bit of fun, tongue in cheek. But, yeah, every country is very different. Um, Jordan has a monarchy, uh, King Hussein of, of Jordan and the whole family there. Um, they're a very dry, arid country that is fundamentally landlocked. Um, so they're very pious towards their natural resources, whereas, say, uh, Egypt is a megapolis and they've got, you know, the Nile Delta, which is one of the richest farming areas in the world, uh, the, the pyramids of Giza. So there's a huge history and there's a um, the massive pride 
uh, and then Dubai. But the one thing that joins them, actually two things that join them all together, obviously, is, is religion and family, but there's a sense of pride in country. Um, you know, you speak to someone from Lebanon, yes, I'm Lebanese. You know, I speak to someone from Jordan, I'm Jordanian. You know, but they're all Arab, Middle Eastern, but, you know, there's that sense of pride. And it's a hard one to define because I'm proud of being Australian, but their, their heritage, Australia is only 230-odd years old as a, as a European colonised one. The, the traditional custodians, and we recognise them, have been here for 43,000 years. But Egypt, the pyramids, you know, four, five, 6,000 years ago. So they have this huge pride that's really grounded in history. Petra, you know, Petra predates some of the pyramids in areas. So, yeah, that, that's one thing that joins them all together. And the sense of hospitality and welcome is you won't see that anywhere in the world. You, you'll get it at a country, you'll get it at a restaurant outside of the Middle East, but it's, it's real and true there. And I'll digress for just a minute. In, in, in the true Arab hospitality and in the Quran and, and the readings there, if your enemy is in need of shelter and food, you must give them shelter and food for three days. They come into your house, they'll eat your food, they'll sleep, they'll rest. Okay, they walk out the door, then your enemies again, but that want for hospitality and, and help is there. And that's ingrained in thousands of years. And you still see it today. Wow. Amazing. A region <laughs> of the world that's just so misunderstood. You said, I, I read where you, I think it was one of your writings. I'm not sure if it's an article that was written about you. I think you wrote this article. You said, I'm not a Muslim, but I feel that I've experienced Mecca. Yeah, look, I am. Um, and again, I say I have the, had the fortune of working in Saudi Arabia for over 11 years. And like I said earlier on, one of the things is to get to know people. And if you go there with an open mind and try to understand the religion, it, it, it's truly, trend, it, it, it's, it's transformative in the way you understand people. Um, I was lucky enough to go to pretty much every city in Saudi except for Mecca. The, the rules are you must be a practicing Muslim to actually enter Mecca. Um, I stopped at the, the gates, uh, the entry area to the Mecca uh, uh, township, or as it is. Um, it's nicknamed the Christian Barrier. It's okay. You can drive through. You won't combust or anything, but you just stop at these beautiful swords and then have a look and go back again. But I say I felt like I've been to Mecca because so many of my colleagues were based in Mecca at our hotels. Um, I had them walk around with their phones, you know, doing tawaf, which is the seven laps of, of, of the Kaaba, the black, yeah. uh, the black building in the middle there. Um, I've had them show me. So I would speak to someone in the US or UK uh, and they say, so what's, what's this Mecca hotel like? Oh, well, you walk out the back and you step off the back of the Delta Heat Intercontinental at the King Fahad Gate. You'll be there. No, no, no. I've just been immersed in the, in, in the city and the culture, and I feel like I've been there. Um, I was fortunate to go to Medina, which is the second holy city in, in, in yeah. Saudi Arabia, uh, twice. And the second time, I'm happy to say that myself and my colleagues were the first two non-Muslims with IHD globally to ever be able to sleep in one of our hotels. Because the, the ruling there is that you can visit with a permit, but you must leave before dusk, and you can stay outside the three ring roads. Um, now, we have permission from the governor, who's one of the princes, said, Yanni, you're okay, you can stay. So we actually stay in the Crown Plaza Medina, which is one block from um, Prophet's Mosque. Um, and that was a truly amazing experience. Um, the guys there took us out the night before to Jebel Uhud, which is the mountain of the Prophet. 
And the story goes that when the prophet left uh, Medina, the mountain shed tears and moved uh, to try to follow Prophet Muhammad. And we went there as non-Muslims after after dark uh, to, to, to see this. And I actually get emotional thinking about that because it was such a huge opportunity, but also a huge trust that they had in me being a Westerner, non-Muslim, of being respectful of those areas. Um, so, yeah, that's why I say that I feel like I've been to, to, to Mecca without actually being there myself. Yeah, it, it, It's funny you mentioned your uh, emotion. I was just getting ready to comment on it. I was just sitting ready to say, Dave, look at his face while he talks about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, <I laughs> It can shows. It. You you wear that with pride. And uh, you know, thank, thank God we got you on this podcast to share this story. <laughs> I, I'm serious. I mean, you know, we live in a country, and I'm talking about us Americans, the rude Americans, where we just think the rest of the world can't stand up to us. And I've been screaming from the top of my lungs, and Dave's heard me preach this before. If you don't get out and see the rest of the world, first of all, half the world is already caught up in passion. You don't even know it. And it, you guys have things in Australia. I know there's things in Great Britain and Germany that exceed what we do here in America, but Americans don't know. They don't have a clue. Mm. And mm. One of the things that I'm bound and determined to do before I leave this earth is to get some people off of their you-know-whats and get their asses out and go see parts of the world. They would be surprised what they find. Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm going di- to divert back for a second. Okay. I, I said in my intro, you lived in seven countries. Is that correct? Yep. Seven okay. countries. Yeah. Okay. So we've covered, we've got, we know about Saudi Arabia. I'm trying to get this, the list. Okay. Up. So um, yeah, the Australia. Um, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, India, uh, Bahrain, uh, Dubai, and then Saudi Arabia. Okay. Seven. seven, yeah, exactly seven. Yeah, seven, okay. Seven. I, well, the yeah, reason yeah. I asked you the question is now I want to make a little bit of a pivot uh, yeah. out of the Middle East and head to Singapore. Yeah. Okay, I, have, I have a friend of mine who's an investment banker and um, or actually managed a hedge fund. And every six months, he would get up and go someplace else. And one of the places he landed was Singapore. Other than the cost of living, which broke him. uh, (laughs) 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 That is one of the wealthiest countries on earth. (laughs) And uh, just give me, I I guess, give me the 360 degree view of life in Singapore. Oh, look, I love love Singapore. Um, it was a very strategically developed country. You know, you think of a planned city or a planned township, that was a planned country. And the, the founders, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, you know, rest his soul, way back when, um, really put their mark on the intellectual property of Singaporeans. Um, now, Singapore is, is a very small island nation. Um, they get, you know, 65% of their water from Malaysia they get probably 80% of their fresh produce from Malaysia and Thailand. Um, but their intellectual property is what's driven Singapore and strategic location as well, being in that, that part of, of Asia. Um, living there was great. Um, again, very not too dissimilar from Dubai, um, just more green. Um, <laughs> everything works, uh, very safe, uh, zero tolerance for shenanigans. Um, yep, more expensive, you're right, Michael, than, than Dubai. Um, but then again, so accessible to everywhere else. And I think being a gateway city, you know, you could fly to Bangkok in an hour and 45. Uh, we drove up to Malaysia quite often. Uh, you know, you could travel through, you know, Thailand um, by road if you wanted to. Uh, India is just a, just a stone's throw away. Uh, and you're sort of halfway between Australia and, and the United Kingdom and, 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 and Europe. 
Um, very proud people. You've got three nationalities there, Singaporean Chinese, Malaysian, and Indian. Um, and everybody pretty much lives in harmony. I mean, they had their, they had their strife in the 70s, I think it was, with some race mm-hmm. riots. You know, hey, show me a part of the world that hasn't had that. We had that in Bondi here about 15 years ago, you know, with the Lebanese and, and the Vietnamese at each other over gangs. Um, but they're very tolerant, um, very, um, very open, um, great party place, great food, uh, chili crab. If you haven't had chili crab in Singapore, you haven't lived. No signboard <laughs> up on the marina. Yep, fantastic place. So, uh, yeah, great, great to live there. And I've actually got some wonderful friends still living there. Actually, as a matter of fact, I'm speaking with one in a couple of hours' time for a coaching call. So, yeah. You have had some amazing experiences traveling. Um, how has travel how has travel changed your perspective on life as an individual? Wow. Um, how has travel changed my perspective on life? It's it's enabled, it's actually made me a lot more uh, uh, thankful for what we have. Um, seeing what other people don't have. Um, we lived in a wonderful villa in India. It was a three-story villa. It was just across the street from the office, literally, and, and on good days I would walk, but other days I'd have to take the car, the, the driver. Right beside the wall was a slum with, uh, you know, blue tarpaulins and, and open fires. So travel has given me a humility um, and also a, an appreciation for how lucky I am and my family is to live where we are. Uh, you know, the, the flip of a coin, if I was born somewhere else, could be very, very different. So, yeah, I think humility. Uh, and also, I'm a curious person by nature. I like to know how things work and tick. Um, and it just keeps driving my want to travel more. Once this bloody pandemic is over and we can leave this country again, great country, you know, I'm keen to travel again with the family. You know, um, my, my daughter has, has traveled to, you know, 38 countries you know, by the time she was 12. You know, she blew two passports in five years. So <laughs> they're the experiences I love for her to have and, and for her to share with other people as well. And I think it also, with the people who have the opportunity to travel a lot, there's also a responsibility that we share those experiences where appropriate. You know, we don't want to go shoving stuff down people's throat, but at least if it comes up a conversation, you can add some context with real experience to the conversation, yeah. Yeah, but but has it? Has it changed your tolerance for other cultures and other beliefs? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, um, you know, all roads lead to to a God. That's the way I look at it. You know, there's 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 42,000, I said 42,000 different religions and gods around the world, you know. And in India, if you've got 12 people following you, you can be a deity if you want to. Um, I think it's just having that understanding um, and tolerance and and respect. Yeah, you say, yeah, cool. Okay. So we were actually in, um, uh, where were we? We were uh, Jaipur, Jaipur for the weekend in India. And we're driving around with our driver and we're going from one place to another. And there's this procession of people in front. They go, oh, what's that? And there's two yogis, probably about 90 years old, long white beards and everything else, stark naked. <laughs> Just walking down the street with their followers behind them. And it was so chilled out. No one was heckling them. No one was yelling at them. It was, oh, yeah, no worries. It was a normal occurrence. And I think when you see something that alien to a Western yeah. mind as being normal, it's like nothing can shock me now. <laughs> 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 nothing can shock me. Well, well, the only time we see that is 
If you go to a strip joint here, if you go to Times Square. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, or Las Vegas, you know, Las Vegas. Or Las right. Vegas. Or <laughs> Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 think, I think they breed that here. <laughs> what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So, yeah. Well, okay, if you say so. Uh, that was a good <laughs> slogan, though. <laughs> Before I lived here, I didn't have an appreciation for that phrase, but I do now. <laughs> cool. Um, I, I um, on a more serious subject for a minute, you mentioned you're being unable to leave Australia right now. Give us kind of a lay of the land in terms of COVID and your restrictions and stuff. What's going on there right now? And what do you see happening in the next six months to a year? Yeah, no, great question, Michael. Um, we're, we're very fortunate. You know, Australia is just one, it's a big bloody island. So our, our government just shut down the borders um, to international flights. Uh, they were the first to start the hotel quarantine, um, which being a hotelier by nature, oh, this is interesting business, but it's also pointed out the fact that hotels don't have negative air pressure in their rooms and they're not good medi hotels. So that, that's been a learning for everybody along the way. Um, Life feels pretty normal. I, I flew to Adelaide last week for a conference. Um, the only abnormality was I had to wear a face mask in the airport on the plane. That was it. Um, there are a few cases in Australia, but mostly through um, hotel quarantine. I think we're going to get about three or four uh, community transmissions. Um, we're being very protective of the people, I, I think, and that's why you know travel is not allowed at the moment unless it's an extenuating circumstances. But unfortunately, we're very much behind the uh, virus, uh, sorry, the vaccination. Uh, you know, the Americas are just streaks ahead, absolute streaks ahead in, in not necessarily numbers, but, you know, percentage of population that's been inoculated now. Um, somebody um, made a, a bit of a crude remark about vaccinations, you know, oh, no, I'm not going to get a vaccination. And then they said, oh, well, you've got more chance of being bitten by a shark than you have getting something from vaccination. And they said, well, you can find a shark in Australia, but you can't find a bloody vaccine, can you? And that sort of sums up the mess we're in right now. Yeah. Wow. So, um, yeah, I think we'll be okay. The next six months are going to be good. They're looking to have um, 75% inoculation by October. So, yeah, but we're only 26 million people. That's not many. Yeah. If I'm coming to Australia, let's say I'm taking a vacation to come to Australia, and I'm thinking ahead of COVID now, um, what can I expect? What are some of the attractions that are very, that are interested in in Australia? What what is Australian life like? Wow, um, there's a saying that we're the lucky country. Um, you can come to Australia depending on the time of the year. You can snow ski, you can dive on a reef, you can surf, you can see the desert, uh, you can watch wildflowers, um, and, and it's quite a diverse. Uh, country. It's a bloody big country too. Six-hour flight from east to west, a bit like the mainland USA. Um, what can you expect? Um, we don't really have a filter. You know, there's uh, there's a there's a funny American uh, comedian called Fluffy. Um, he's a bit of a character, and he rec he recounts a trip to Australia, and we don't have a filter. You know, mm -hmm. if it's a hot day, it's a fucking hot day. <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and yeah, but also you'll have a lot of authentic hospitality. You know, if you want a real meal, you'll get it here. But if you want a real meal from any nationality in the world, you'll also find that here as well. If you want oh, the okay. best Vietnamese vegetable rolls, you'll find it. If you want a really good Armenian stew, you'll find it. 
And that's the beauty of Australia. It's such a melting pot. Every nationality and culture in the world is represented in some way, shape or form here. You know, we have a Sikh temple about uh, three kilometres down the road. Uh, the, the nearest mosque to me is about six kilometres down the road. And they were doing community iftar. So you, you can expect the world in Australia and the world of Australia. Yeah. But the one thing I would request is that if you're going to fly and fly to Brisbane Airport, uh, I'll pick you up. You can come here and we'll give you a nice big barbecue. Ah, uh, with, with, with prawns, David. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Australian hospitality. I love it, Damien. <laughs> and, 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 and speaking of fucking hot, it was 100 degrees here two days ago. <laughs> yeah, that's warm. That's yeah. getting up there. Yeah, that's getting yeah. up there. Uh, last summer is the warmest, the hottest place on earth ever recorded is about 100 miles to my front door in the Mojave Desert. It was 136 degrees there last summer. What's that, oh. Death Valley? Death Valley, yep. <laughs> That's hot. That's hot. Yeah, but that, that's that's a hot day for what are we? Just early May as well. That's that's yeah. Very we, hot. we we got a hundred. I think this is the second earliest that they've ever gotten to a hundred. Uh, but we're about to. We're actually going to be a hundred this weekend. Oof. Well, there you go. There's the science you're talking about before. It's all about global warming, not necessarily climate. So yeah. <laughs> you, you know you you know what's so funny though. And this is bizarre, and I, and I know you have blistering hot days because like when you guys have the Australian Open and. In the, the in your summertime uh, down there, and we always see the reports on TV. About 108 degrees on the court today in Melbourne. You know, we see that. But it, the thing about Las Vegas, I've been here for 10 years, and every year that I'm here, it just seems to be getting a degree or two warmer and less rain. Last year, this place got one and a half inches of rain for the entire year. Bloody hell, that's nothing. Yeah, I mean, I you know, and the water supply that we get actually comes from the Colorado River because it drains thousands of miles north of us. It's being depleted because all the people upstream are using the water. And by the time it gets here, Lake Mead, which is our reservoir, is down about 60 feet. I don't know what they're going to do about that. And this heat's not going anywhere. I mean, the, the, the hard part about Death Valley is it's 235 feet below sea level. And it's ringed by mountains. So the hair gets down and it gets stuck. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, you're exactly right. Yeah, oh, we, we've had our, our, our shit fight here in Australia too. Um, in 2019, 2020, we had the worst bushfires ever. Oh, yeah. There was um, a billion animals, as the estimate, were lost. You know, wow. the koala, yeah, a billion animals. Uh, it was just decimating. Kangaroo Island in South Australia lost um, 75% of its uh, bush and 70% and, uh, of its koala population. Uh, terrible. Um, wow. And recovering from that, then there's this bloody pandemic. And then we had these floods uh, in 2020 and even just a couple of weeks ago. But you're funny about the, the floods. I mean, we had shitload of rain here. Um, but then 80 kilometres inland, which is the main catchment area for Brisbane, the dam's at 40%. Our dam here in the Gold Coast is, was 110%. So, yeah, I think it's just where it sort of falls. You're getting all these little microclimates, which is, uh, which wow. is really awful. It's, and I don't think it's going to get any better anytime soon i think we've all got to take responsibility for our little piece yeah yeah i totally agree in in the few remaining moments uh we have left uh i I wanted to get a little bit about what you actually do for um a living uh because i i had mentioned in the intro you know about your um leadership and and your coaching and stuff like that tell us a little bit about that yeah look thanks very much um i i'm a Credential Coach for the International Coaching Federation. Um, they're the largest credentialing body around the world, and they have their headquarters in the USA. 
Um, I'm holding what they call the ACC level of coaching, which is 100 hours plus. I'm about 20 hours short of my PCC, which is 500 paid hours of coaching. Um, signed up a, a code of conduct and everything else. And the coaching I do, it's really interesting. Um, when I came to Australia, when you mentioned the word coach, they go, oh, you're a life coach. No, I'm not a life coach. I, I specialize purely in leadership development and succession planning with service-based businesses. That's it. So um, I'm on the, um, the corporate panel for the Brisbane City Council, um, working with the Arts Council of Australia, University of Southern Queensland, um, and then I have other individual clients as well, all from service-based businesses. And I, and I focus on the individual from a leadership perspective to help them really overcome maybe self-limiting beliefs to get to the next position, or if there isn't a position, how they can fortify themselves to make themselves achieve well at that next position there. Um, now, that's one hat that I wear. Um, and with all the time I've spent in hotels, I also represent on a retainer a small hotel brand called Lanson Place as a, uh, uh, as a development uh, representative. So I'm a coach and a, and a hotel developer at the same time, So which is great. I'm, I'm loving it. In my little home office out in the boat shed type thing, and uh, yeah, loving it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, 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 I'm actually jealous of the hotel development thing. That was one of the things that my son and I were going to uh, work on before I got sucked into the entertainment industry. <laughs> oh, look, the, with the right brand, there's still opportunity out there. I mean, the Lance and Place, there's only 12 hotels in Asia, but they're running at a 55% GOP. Um, you know, all at a, a, at a 1.5, um, you know, revenue generating index above competition. So if you find the right brand, it works really well. Um, yeah, and, and I think if I was to develop a hotel brand myself, it would be probably a Staybridge or Holiday Inn Express. Oh. Good models. Yeah. Good models. Yeah, good models. Land in Australia is just too expensive, but uh, apart from that, it'd be a good model to work with. So, uh, so I guess me opening a place in Beverly Hills is out of the question. For the time being, yeah. Unless I win Lotto, then I'm all, I'm all over it, yeah. <laughs> Even that wouldn't help you in Beverly Hills, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, keep, keep that in mind, Dave. We may have to launch the Cumberbatch. Yeah. Yeah, we're just sticking under somebody else's brand. That's right. <laughs> got a ring to it. Yeah, the Cumberbatch Inn. Cumberbatch the Cum- Inn. Yeah, the Cumberbatch Inn. You know, yeah. you... Yeah. The- maybe, maybe, maybe we can go talk Benedict Cumberbatch into being the face of it. Yeah. <laughs> of course, he'll probably charge us a small fortune. Well, yeah, he would. Yeah, he would. <laughs> <laughs> I've... <laughs> I've never been held speechless. I'm, <laughs> Damien, I'm listening to you, Michael, and I'm just laughing. My mouth is open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, one more question on your leadership. Does your leadership training also extend to entrepreneurs? Um, to a degree, yes. If they're looking for the soft skill uh, element of it, uh, definitely, yeah. Everybody seeks out a coach for one reason or another. and. 90% of the time, the reason they think they're employing a coach is not the one that they actually need the coach for. So I have, have one person that's in a startup um, mode, but theirs is more around presence and public speaking and being one of confidence. Mm-hmm. So I'm helping them on that side of things, whereas the business side would be with somebody else from a business uh, business discipline. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the wonderful thing about coaching because it's, it's industry agnostic. You know, I'm working with healthcare, um, council, uh, learning. Uh, hotels, restaurants, um, even a hospital, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, a bit of everything, which is great because people are people. Yeah, that's true. Well, How is that going at this time during COVID and you're not able to travel? Uh, is, um, is, is it done virtually? 
Yeah, everything's over Zoom. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, my corporate corporate clients here over Zoom. I, I can travel to Brisbane and I've been up there twice this year. Um, but all the other one-on-ones are all done through Zoom. Yeah, it's just easier. I think less from a fact of COVID, but more efficiency. Rather than traveling half an hour to meet somewhere, you can sort of just dial in, do the coaching session, then dial out again. Yeah, more efficient. Yeah. But do, do you ever see a time where you're going to be able to go back to doing a little more public speaking? I used to make a pretty good living at public speaking and that all went away. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, I love it because you can draw off the crowd, yep. you know, that energy. Yeah. Yep. yeah. I love it. Um, hopefully soon. We, um, I was at this event last week in Adelaide. It was the Australian Hotel Investment Conference and Exhibition. They call it AHIS. And they had 910 delegates. And actually, it was the largest single event going in the world at the time. Um, and there were people on stage and exhibitions. And yeah, that buzz. I miss that buzz. I hope to go back to that soon. Yeah. I do too. I mean, there's nothing like looking at the front because you know, most of the time the lights are on, so you can't see the back of the room. But the people who are sitting there in front, you can read their faces, you can interact with them. I love that stuff. Yeah. You, usually I'd get that quizzical look like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> must be good, though. He's up there. Yeah. <laughs> but as the first person who um, told me, somebody told me this years ago, remember, they're there to see you. You're the expert. They have no clue what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> Just talk. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Yeah. You've also done a bit of writing, Damien. Talk to me about that. Oh, I think I'm one of the 65 million frustrated authors out there. Um, I actually... Me too. Hey, oh, well, well done, Michael. Excellent. <laughs> oh, so I'm 64,999,000. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's so much to say from the travel that I've done and the people I've met that I want to put it into some sort of vehicle and, 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 and writing would be it. And I'm kicking myself every single bloody day that I didn't start doing something like this like 10, 12 years ago when I was traveling. Um, I, I do have a book, you know, sort of in draft. It's called Checking Out. Um, so I'll give that a go soon enough. But um, yeah, I like to tinker with it. Um, I wish I had more time, which is silly from a coach perspective because we all have 160 hours a week. It's how I use that time to write. But yeah, I like doing it. I like getting to the vibe and just spreading a few stories and a few um, learnings along the way for somebody else. And if, if it can just make somebody think a little bit differently about maybe the culture I'm writing about or the travel, the destination, job's done. Job's yeah. done. Well, now, now you have a challenge because Dave and I want you to come back on our podcast when that book is done. Okay, game on. <laughs> game on. <laughs> uh, actually, talking about books, my daughter is uh, very, very um, creative. And when she was in Dubai, she actually wrote a book uh, when she was 14. And we, we self-published it. And uh, yeah, dad's yet to see the paycheck on that one. But great learning for her. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm actually in the middle of writing three screenplays right now. And um, if I manage to sell one of them, if I don't produce it myself, I'll probably make enough money to last myself a year. <laughs> oh, wow. Three screenplays. Wow. Well, three screenplays, two books, and a podcast. That's okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I get bored easily, if you can tell. Yeah. You've got to yeah. stay active. I, 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 my mind has to go different places. Dave knows this about me. I, I get up in the morning for about four or five hours, do my screenplays, and I stop and then do this the rest of the day. And, you know, we're actually in the process of putting together um, some marketing and, and opening up our own online store on our platform as well. That's uh, travel and tourism and entertainment industry related. So 
uh, that is taking a lot of my focus away from uh, doing other things. And I like to write. It's, it's enjoyable to me, but I, I won't be able to write that much longer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I have to watch out for the platform as well because I've got some great contacts in the entertainment industry through Australia and Asia as well. So, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Wherever I can support you guys, I'd, I'd be happy to do so. Well, Very we, much appreciate it. Appreciate that. Um, so what's next for you? Last question. Um, what's next for me? Um, well, I'm running a heap of webinars this week and next week on the Lance and Place brand. So I'd like to sign a MOU with the developer for a Lance and Place in Australia. Um and keep going with my coaching. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And start that bloody book. I really have to start that book. <laughs> yeah. I've got the pressure now. I have to start that book. Yeah. yeah. Listen, I'm I'm gonna write a book about how the West Indies used to beat the crap out of Australia until and until <laughs> until Thompson and Lily came along. <laughs> Oh, I know the Windies. The Windies were the, the windies. bloody best. Absolutely <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but we couldn't handle Thompson and Lily, man. Those boys were bad. Yeah, they were. They were absolutely yeah. were. Yeah. Joel, Joel the, Garner, you guys had and all. Oh, yes. Yeah. To the folks who don't know, you know, we're digressing a bit on cricket sports. <laughs> actually one thing talk about sports very quickly when i came back to australia one of the one of the main differences i saw because we hadn't lived here for like 16 years was women's sport it's it's equal up there like the australian football league male and women the cricket team uh, we have a, a soccer player the captain of the australian soccerers female mm-hmm. is has won some amazing trophy with the european league so wow. yeah, the the women in sport is is up there. They they're giving the boys a run for their money, which is good. So which is great. This is good. This is yeah. good. This is well, good. Well, if it's anything like the United States, actually, the women's soccer team is better than the men's <laughs> by a by a lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Beckham to kick off the men's one. That's right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, the the women win gold medals. The men don't even make it into the World Cup. Oh, no. <laughs> I should tell you something. <laughs> so, anyway, my friend, I appreciate you giving us a little bit of a world tour and I'm glad we finally uh, caught up to you. Um, I'm hoping on some level, Dave, and I actually get to meet you in person soon. Um, I think we'd have a blast whether we come to you or whether we meet in the Middle East. Oh, look, I'd love to, guys. Absolutely. It'd be my pleasure to meet up in person and, yeah, welcome you guys down under one day soon for a... Uh, a prawn and a steak on the barbie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, all right. On on that note, uh, we want to thank Damien Tenbomber for uh, coming on all the way from Australia. This has been in the works for probably five or six months now, so I'm glad we finally got this handled. And that was our fault, so you're not to blame. That was on me. Um, so um, I appreciate you coming on. I hope you'll come back and do it again. You don't need to wait for the book to come on. We'll 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 figure out some other thing. We can talk about the prawns again. Um, so, uh, on behalf of my dear friend, Dave Cumberbatch, uh, we want to thank you again, Damien, for coming on. And for those of you listening, uh, stay tuned next week for another great episode of TripCast 360. So long. 